Good morning. Good to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you, um, would love to get a chance to say hi after the service. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a blue Bible on the ground near you, and you can find Ephesians 4 on page 977. Um, We are in a series called The Way of Jesus. And uh, if you haven't been with us uh, the last couple weeks or you're here for the first time, um, this is a series where we're looking at what does it look like to follow Jesus in a world that is in some, that feels to many of us like we live in a world that is losing its mind. <laughs> and um, how can we be faithful followers of Jesus, uh, whether you um, consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning or not, um, still well worth considering. And so um, I've been referencing um, some data, um, some research in this series that was done by the Barna Group, one of the kind of leading groups that studies um, trends related to faith and spirituality in our world. And um, in particular, we're looking at some research around, um, they did did a, a study researching the faith practices of millennials, roughly 18 to 35 years old, and found that the faith practices of people in this age group uh, really point the direction of where we are headed as a culture. And so they found that the faith practices of 18 to 35-year-olds roughly uh, fall out into four categories, into four camps. There are uh, 22% of young adults that uh, they call the prodigals. These are people who have left the church, who no longer, who do not identify themselves as Christians, 22%. And then the next group is the nomads. And these are people who, if asked on a survey or something like that, would say, yes, I'm a Christian, and yet they're not in any um, active way attempting to follow Jesus or participating in the life of the church. Uh, A third of people fall into that category, a third of young adults. And then the third group is the cultural Christians. This is the largest group in the United States, 38%, who uh, are people who are involved in the life of a church, um, attend church with some regularity, uh, but, but really that's it. So we're doing, we're doing Christianity, or sorry, we're doing church, but we're not doing biblical Christianity. And then the final group they call the resilient disciples. And I love this word resilient, people who live with realism and hope, who, um, the metaphor I've been using, I, I, like, I like to think about it this way, is that if you put a wine glass under stress, a wine glass shatters. But if you put a muscle under stress, a muscle grows back stronger. And so the 10%, the resilient disciples, are people whose faith is being strengthened in, uh, in this cultural moment that we live in. So these four expressions of faith, and what they did when they kind of plugged in a little bit deeper to say, okay, so these resilient disciples, what are they doing? Um, I, I realize the way I've been showing you this information the last couple of weeks is probably a little bit confusing, and so I've changed the graphic up <laughs> late last night. It's a little janky, I think, but we'll work on it. Um, but, but resilient disciples, there are really six things that characterize them. Uh, resilient disciples read the Bible and pray. Um, and these are not things that we do as a chore as much as they are things we do to experience more of the presence of God, to experience God as the source of our life. Uh, so resilient disciples read the Bible and pray, practice hospitality, but they also live with these three convictions on the right side, that the gospel changes everything, that the church is central to my spiritual life, and then this final one that we're looking at this morning, I am my brother's keeper. I know that's kind of a cheesy phrase, What does that mean, and where does it come from? Resilient disciples live with the conviction that I am my brother's keeper. And what that means is this. When, um, can you put up the next one? Thank you. When isolation and mistrust are the norm, uh, resilient disciples forge meaningful intergenerational relationships in a culture where isolation and mistrust are the norm. People who are living with faith, and realism and hope forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Resilient disciples develop relational maturity, living with the conviction that I am my brother's keeper. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning as I read God's word. 
And I'm going to briefly just read two verses from Genesis 4, where this uh, phrase, brother's keeper, comes from. And then I'll read um, Ephesians 4. Listen as I read uh, God's word. Genesis 4, verse 8 and 9. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that's manhood not in, in contrast to womanhood, but in contrast to childhood. To mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray that you would be with us now as we give our attention to your word and consider uh, this incredibly important but difficult task of, of building relationships. God, we need your help. Would you be present with us in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated, please. So as many of you know, my wife and I have four kids. And for, I think, the last five years, we have had at least two of them playing soccer. Uh, On occasion, we've had three of them playing soccer. I've been to a lot of soccer games in the last five years. I've coached uh, several soccer teams and um, it's great. It's wonderful. But one of the things that I have noticed, as you all noticed if you watch children play sports, is that there, there's this dynamic that happens in the early years, from the ages of maybe six to eight, where you get a team that has a dominant player. You get a team that has a six-year-old that has the body of a 12-year-old. You know, this kid is a freak of nature. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's way heavier than everybody else. It happens with girls, too, I guess. Um, uh, Obviously, (laughs) he or she is more aggressive than the other players, and this one player carries the whole team. And at those younger age levels, uh, this, this one player just dominates the whole league. And so I've seen a lot of games like that. But now as my older kids are getting older and you get into the kind of 10 to 13-ish age bracket, what's beginning to happen is that those players who are used to being dominant, who are used to kind of relying on their giftedness, are are going through this transitional period where their, their peers are catching up with them physically. And they're no longer able to carry the whole team. And they're no longer physically dominant over the rest of the players. And in some cases, what you're actually beginning to see is that those players who were once so gifted and dominant are becoming a liability to their, to their team. Because they don't know how to pass. They don't know how to play with other people. 
they, uh, they get the ball and they will never, ever, ever give it up. <laughs> and so you see this player who used to be so gifted and such a star beginning to become almost a detriment, a liability to his team. Some of these kids have a short window before their giftedness is wasted. So why am I telling you about this? Well, here's the point. Giftedness can only take you so far. But real maturity, real maturity in life must always be developed and demonstrated in relationship with other people. Real maturity in life must always be demonstrated and developed in relationship with other people. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word maturity. What does it look like to be mature? Especially in terms of the church and Christianity, what does a mature Christian look like? Often I think that um, we have this tendency to think that mature Christians are people who, uh, they, they can quote a lot of Bible verses. Um, they're comfortable praying in front of other people. Uh, mature Christians are people who have kind of this, this general moral quality about them. Um, those aren't necessarily signs of a lack of maturity. But the Bible consistently tells us what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, and I realize that he's saying a lot here, but at the most fundamental level what he's saying is this, Christian maturity will always be developed and demonstrated in relationship with one another. Relationships trump everything. You can know all the right answers. You can be a great teacher. You can give generously. You can serve. You can give of your time. But without love, Paul says in another letter, you have nothing. Christian maturity is primarily about the relational building up of other people out of an overflow of Christ's work in you building you up. Let me say that again. Christ is in you building you up so that out of an overflow of what he's doing in you, you might give yourself away to others to build them up. Resilient disciples are developing the muscles of relational maturity. Now, I'm guessing that that is not very controversial, that, that nobody here would say, you know, I really don't want to have more meaningful relationships in my life. Um, you know, none, none of us want to live in a society where people are isolated and disconnected. So why do we find relationships so difficult? And why does it feel like we're living through a time when our world is kind of like losing its head and people are uh, technologically connected and yet relationally lonely? Why in the world are we connected and yet experiencing increasing isolation. So uh, this morning I want, I want you to see two things coming out of God's word. And the first thing I want you to see is this, the challenges of modern relationships. The challenges of modern relationships. Um, relationships have always been hard. It's not just a modern phenomenon that relationships are hard, but uh, we read uh, in, in the opening chapters of the Bible this morning that uh, relationships have always been, been hard and um, uh, and really what's happening is that as soon as the human race turns its back on God and says, we don't need God in our life to, uh, to live a great life, um, sin enters into the mix and relationships become very difficult. As soon as we try to do life without God, jealousy, envy, and strife become the norm in every human relationship. And so the first brothers in human history, Cain and Abel, instead of like working side by side and complimenting each other, uh, Cain gets jealous of Abel. And so when they're out in the field alone, Cain rises up and actually murders his brother, Abel. And what's happening is this, that God created the human race out of an overflow of God's own love. Um, the Bible says consistently that the God of the universe exists eternally in a community, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. God is a community unto himself. And so God created the human, the human race, not because he was bored, not because he didn't have anything to do or he wanted people to toy with or something, but God created the human race in a sense out of an overflow of his love to, to, to expand the, the circle of love. And he created Adam and Eve 
And so human beings are intentionally relational beings. We were created to experience God's love, but we, we were created to, to, um, to almost to radiate God's love, to expand God's love to one another. But when we rejected God, we end up turning on each other. And so instead of brothers working alongside each other, lifting each other up, we turn against each other and we use each other. And Cain steps on his brother in order to lift himself up. He murders his brother and God comes to him and says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain strangely says, I don't know. Is that my problem? Am I my brother's keeper? And that question echoes throughout human history and throughout Scripture. And the resounding answer of God is, yes, yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. It is my job to care about others. And so in a broken world, we tend to treat other people like things, like the rungs on a ladder that we step on to lift each other up. And God answers the question, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And so relationships have always been difficult for uh, the human race. It's been that way since the beginning. It's not a new problem. And yet it does seem like in the last, and I don't know what time period to put on it, but it does really seem like in the last number of years, something is shifting in our culture. Uh, and it has clearly, uh, there clearly is a change in the way we relate to one another. A um, couple quotes here um, coming out of this research from the Barna Group. Adults today are twice as likely to say they are lonely compared to a decade ago. Just in 10 years, it's been a massive shift. About one out of every five Americans say they feel very lonely. Interestingly, I didn't put this up here, but one in three millennials say they are very lonely. So it, it, there's this increasing sense that the younger generations, kind of more on, the, on the, the forefront of where are we going as a culture, are increasingly lonely. One of the most read articles, uh, newspaper articles in the last several years, was an uh, article published in 2017 in the Boston Globe that reported that the greatest health risk to middle-aged men is not smoking or, ob- or obesity, but loneliness. It is loneliness that is killing us. Cigna Healthcare, an insurance company, recently put out a study where they reported that loneliness has reached what they described as an epic level, uh, an epidemic level, <laughs> not an epic level, has reached the level of an epidemic in America. They found that most American adults are considered lonely and that the youngest generations of adults, the youngest generation of adults is the loneliest of us all. Why does Cigna Healthcare care about how lonely we are? Because an insurance company is finding it incredibly expensive to treat the outcomes associated with loneliness, health and especially mental health uh, outcomes. So something has radically shifted in our time. Relationships have always been difficult, but they're becoming even harder for us, and that's uh, displayed just in, in, the, in, the, in the health outcomes, that the, the lifespan of Americans is, uh, is, is actually shortening for the last three or four years. And for followers of Jesus, I think that is especially concerning to us because, friends, we are in the relationship business. I mean, this is what the church is here for. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he's describing the gospel. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Followers of Jesus, we are here because God has reconciled us to himself. He has come down to restore a relationship between me and God, between you and God, and then he sends you out into the world to reconcile others, to build relationships. This is why we're here. Relational maturity will always be developed and displayed in relationship. And so if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully in this world, in this world where people are incredibly iso- increasingly isolated and lonely, we have to understand some of the unique challenges to, bear, to building relationships in our time. And so I want to um, share with you some of the, some of the data that is... Um, 
that is coming out uh, around relationships in, in this book. Um, it's called Faith for Exiles. Is the title of this book by David Kinnaman and Mark, Mark Matlock um, from the Barna Group. They, they talk about this phrase, uh, they, they describe the world that we're living in as digital Babylon. And what they're saying is that um, much like God's people in the Old Testament, who uh, you read about in the book of Daniel and the book of Jeremiah, that were taken physically out of Jerusalem and physically taken to Babylon, that Christians today are living in, in digital Babylon. What he means by that is this. If you live in Jerusalem, everybody you meet sort of generally agrees with the Bible. There is a God. He is good. He loves you. We no longer live in that place and time. We no longer live in a place and time when these systems and institutions of our culture um, lend themselves to belief in the God of the Bible. And so unlike the exiles in the Old Testament, we're not physically removed from Babylon, or to, to physical Babylon, but we live in digital Babylon where the, the narrative that life can be great without God is being thrust upon us constantly, most of us without even knowing it, because of the ubiquity of technology. And it doesn't mean that technology is a bad thing, um, but what it means, for example, is that if you are a Christian parent and you are discipling your children, that your children are also being discipled by, your, by the culture uh, without you even knowing it because of their connection to technology. And it's the same for adults, too. We are all being um, shaped and formed by digital Babylon. And so living in this time, being shaped by digital Babylon, culture that says life can be great without God, and yet what we're seeing is that there's that narrative that life can be great without God is failing us, as it's evidenced by the increasing loneliness in our culture. Uh, this culture is radically changing the way that we relate to each other. And so I, I just want to kind of summarize what that looks like. And I'm, I'm relying on a guy named Mark Sayers, who's a pastor and author and genius in, uh, in Australia. And he, he, um, he, he says several things about, uh, so just five kind of bullet points about what's happening in this world. Digital Babylon forms us to fear commitments and to place personal autonomy before relationships, community, and belonging. We have become people who are commitment-phobic. Because of our fear of missing out, we are afraid to commit to anything. And the use of technology actually makes it easier to cancel uh, our commitments, even at the last second at times. Okay. Second one, digital Babylon offers us many weak relational ties at the expense of strong relational ties. Um, Weak relational ties um, are things like uh, you might know the guy who lives down your street. You might see him. You wave at each other a couple times a week as you get in and out of your car. Maybe you walk your dog at the same time and you run into each other and you wave at each other. Maybe you're kind of like, I can't really remember his name, though. Uh, that's That's a weak relational tie. A strong relational tie is somebody who will show up when you ask for help. Okay, so we live in a culture that that fosters weak relational ties um, and discourages at the expense of strong relational ties. So here's the irony of living in the time we live in. You can be surrounded by people. You can have thousands of followers on social media. You can be physically in the presence of people all the time and yet be incredibly lonely and isolated because we have many weak relational ties, few strong relational ties. I remember several years ago when one of my kids was born, I, I, one of the younger two, I can't even remember which one, but I remember uh, the baby being born and at the hospital and like posting a picture like, baby's here on Facebook. And it felt like I had just become the star of a ticker tape parade. I mean, Everybody was, congratulations, hundreds of people on Facebook. Just, it felt like Mark Zuckerberg was going to jump in and con- personally congratulate me on the birth of a child. You know, it's overwhelming. And then two weeks later, I, we needed help with babysitting to take the baby, the, the older two kids, so we could take the baby to the doctor. And I put on Facebook, hey, can anybody babysit my older two kids for 90 minutes later this week? Crickets. <laughs> Nothing. Weak relational ties all over the place, but who will show up when you need help? 
We can be surrounded by people, but uh, desperately, desperately alone. I, I actually saw this on Facebook this week. A friend of mine said, I'm like, I'm weeding out my friends list. You know, please don't take us personally. I'm just going to start like calling people out. And somebody said, but this is the only way, this is how I keep up with you. He's like, I haven't interacted with you personally in three years. Like, if we haven't actually interacted in three years, but you, like, are we really friends anymore? Weak relational ties. Okay, so here's the point. Human flourishing and happiness is directly related to the number of strong relational ties in your life. Social scientists say that the, the five closest people in your life will, will affect your life in a way that is largely unconscious to you and yet completely overwhelming. Uh, th- they found that if the five closest friends or relationships in your life, if those five people gain five pounds, you will also gain five pounds. <laughs> Isn't that funny? The great news is that if the five people around you lose five pounds, you will also lose five pounds. The strong relational ties in your life lead to human flourishing, and we have fewer and fewer of those. Next, digital Babylon um, is a high-performance culture which teaches us to put material things, experiences, and achievement before relationships and community. A simpler way to say this is we are formed in such a way that we begin to love things and use people. We love things and use people instead of loving people and using things. Uh, One of the ways that we see this is through our changing attitude towards youth sports. And I, let me say this clearly, like I love sports. I played sports growing up as a kid. I used a sports illustration in this sermon, so I'm not an anti-sports person. But one of the things that, that is, I think, changed in my lifetime is the way that we view youth sports um, has changed. We, youth sports used to be seen as a way to socialize your children. And so um, youth sports, um, what was the benefit of putting your kids in, in, a, in a soccer team, baseball team, basketball team, whatever? The benefit was they learn how to play on a team. They learn how to get along with other people. They learn how to lose and not you know, lose it. They learn how to um, you know, stick with something. When you get on a team that's not really great, but you're going to stick it out to the end of the season, you learn the, the sense of accomplishment, of, of, of shared accomplishment, of doing something together. It's about socialization. Nobody sees youth sports as doing that anymore. Youth sports is increasingly now viewed um, as, a, as a way to form an identity, as a way to der- derive value, worth, and a sense of, of, of purpose, of identity. And that's happening both for kids but it's also increasingly happening for parents. Um, as, a, as a soccer coach, one of the things that we're often taught, kind of told and taught, taught now is how to deal with the parents that are kind of overly <laughs> invested in their children's athletic prowess at a very young age. So what's the point? Youth sports are just one way that as a culture we're being shaped to value things, experiences, um, an achievement over people, over relationships, over community. So this is a little bit of a, aside from what I'm saying, but let me say it anyway. If you love Jesus and you have children that are playing sports, you need to have a very good strategy for discipling your children. Because the statistics are that if you begin to privilege youth sports involvement over church involvement, the statistics are that your children will walk away from Jesus. I mean, the statistics are so overwhelming. Because what they see is, we sacrifice for sports, we sacrifice for sports, we sacrifice for sports. And if they don't see you sacrificing for Jesus, they grow into people who sacrifice for sports. Digital Babylon, next. Digital Babylon erodes social capital. Social capital, what is social capital? Social capital is the network of relationships that enables a society to function effectively. Social capital, uh, churches provide 
enormous amount of social capital, volunteer organizations, the PTA, youth sports, um, volunteering at the library, all of these things, um, you know, in order to live in a place and have a great, rich sense of neighborliness and community life, uh, social capital is, re- is what is required where people say, I'm going to invest myself in kind of the bank of social capital. And yet, at times, there's going to be times when I need to make a withdrawal. There are times when I need somebody to show up for me, but I generally have a posture of, I'm here to be a good neighbor. Uh, and that's how social capital is built. Well, we now live in a time where social capital is eroding. And uh, I was thinking of a, kind of an analogy this week that, you know what a run on the bank is? I have a very elementary understanding of finance, so somebody, somebody might correct me afterwards. But a bank makes money because I invest my savings in the bank, and then they take that savings from myself and others and loan it out to other people. Am I right? Okay. <laughs> well, the bank of social capital... So what's a run on a bank? A run on a bank is when we lose confidence in the bank, and so we go withdraw our money, but the bank doesn't have enough money in order to give us our money back. We're now living in a time when social capital has eroded to the point where it's like there's been a run on the bank of social capital because we are not investing in neighborliness, but we come into relationships saying, what am I getting out of this? Everybody's trying to withdraw their social capital, and there's not enough social... You understand, I think, at this point, right? (laughs) Social capital, these eroding. Um, And then uh, fifthly, I guess, finally, Digital Babylon's failing life script creates in us a lack of personal formation and poor emotional health, which undermines meaningful community. What does that mean? The failing life script of Digital Babylon says that uh, the life script is you don't need God in your life in order to live a great life. You do you, and things will be amazing for you. We don't need God, but here's the result. We no longer know how to do community or build relationships. Um, We don't know how to do this anymore. The statistics, uh, I was a college pastor for six years. One of the things that is very prevalent when you work with college students is college students don't go on dates anymore. I mean, there, there's the hookup culture, but there's no dating culture. We don't know how to do relationships anymore. Um, it's harder to be on community, in community with each other. When things get, a, like, it's not even that we bail when things are difficult. It's like when things might be difficult or that could be awkward, we just don't bother. Um, we don't know how to do community. We enter community and relationships in order to get our needs met, and when our needs aren't met, we bail. So we're living at a time when relating to one another is becoming very difficult because our culture has shaped us in ways that often without us realizing it, um, without us realizing it, it's led us to this place where our default posture is to step on others in order to build ourselves up. That's the natural uh, posture. And yet the cracks in the foundation are beginning to show as the epidemic of loneliness affects our health and our mental health at increasingly high levels. And so the question is, can anything be done? Can any, I, I don't know, I felt, it feels kind of depressing at this point. <laughs> can anything be done about this? Yes. Look to the right of you. Like literally look to the right of you right now. Look to the left of you. Okay, now just enjoy the awkwardness of... <laughs> This is God's solution to the epidemic of human loneliness. Friends, Resurrection FC, we have the solution. Resilient disciples develop the muscles of meaningful relationships. So the second thing I want you to see in this passage in God's word is the promise of gospel relationships. The promise of gospel relationships Ephesians 4, 22-24, Paul says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old self, put on the new self. What does that mean? 
What Paul is saying is that there is this old way of relating to each other that is natural, that is, um, that is basic to humanity as offspring of Cain. And that is to say, um, you are not my problem. The only thing I really care about is me and my problem. And if you get in my way, I'm going to step on you to get what I want. Now, most of us don't say it that bluntly. We've been socialized enough to know that we shouldn't just kill people because we're jealous of them. Uh, that's good. But we're, we, we step on people. We, we use people. We love things. That's the old self the natural way of relating to each other and we need to put off that old self and put on the new self and it's interesting that Paul is when he's saying this he's talking to Christians he's not talking about the difference between you know not being a Christian and being a Christian he's saying you can be a Christian you can be a person who says I believe Jesus lived and died and rose again for me I'm trusting in him for salvation and yet I'm living out of this old self this old way of relating to other people I'm going to use you for my benefit. I'm going to stand by and say nothing as I watch you make self-destructive decisions. And what Paul is saying is we need to actively discipline ourselves to put off the old self and put on the new self. You know, there is a way of leading this church as your pastor that is old Bryce leading the church. It's a way of saying I get worth and significance as our church flourishes, as our church grows. And so I pastor you (laughs) for my own benefit. That's really ugly. Um, There is a way of parenting out of the old Bryce. It happens a lot. (laughs) There's a way of parenting that says, you need to behave because it's annoying when you don't. I don't like living in a house. Um... It's not, it's not loving, it's not serving my children, it's not helping them uh, grow up into maturity. There's a way of doing marriage that is about fulfilling myself. To put on the new self is discipline, and I fail at it regularly. We all do, and yet developing the muscles of meaningful relationships mean, means that we allow the gospel to reshape the way that we do relationships. The gospel is at the heart of building meaningful, mature relationships. What have we said? The natural way that we approach relationships is the way of Cain. Even when it's more subtle, I step on you to lift myself up. Gospel relationships say, come here, let me, let me put you on my shoulders. Let me lift you up. The question is, how do, you, how do you get that to come out of you? Because <laughs> you, can, you can listen to this and say, well, that's great. I'm going to grit it out, pastor. Okay, I get, yeah, it would be good if I was a little bit less selfish. And I can kind of white-knuckle it, and that will change things for a very, very short time in, in, in your life, in my life. But Jesus shows us a different way, and actually seeing the way of Jesus doesn't just inspire us to change, but it actually makes change possible. Because Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he takes his three closest friends with him, Peter, James, and John, and he says, I want you to stay here, and I want you to pray, with, pray for me. And Jesus, it says, goes a little bit further on, and he begins to pray, and when he comes back, his friends have fallen asleep on him. They've let him down. And this happens three times, and Jesus is so discouraged. It says says that uh, as he prays, Jesus says, "My my, My soul is greatly troubled, even to the point of death. And he's asking his friends to pray for him, to pray for him. And as this is all happening, he prays to the Father and and, um, and looking ahead and knowing what's coming for him, knowing that the cross is before him, Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. And, and what, he's, what he's doing is he, he's, he's saying, Jesus is saying to God the Father, he says, I know that before all time and eternity, according to the counsel of God's will, we purpose that the, the second person, the Trinity, was going to come and give his life in order to reconcile people like us 
to God. But now I'm here in this moment, Jesus is saying, and, and if there's another way to pl- accomplish this reconciliation, if there's a plan B, can we please go with plan B? Jesus, looking to the cross, says, I do not want to go and suffer and die, but not my will, but yours be done. He's praying this as his friends are falling asleep on him. I mean, if there was one person in all of human history that could say, I'm going to do what I want right now, it's Jesus. And yet he says, I'm not going to step on you to elevate myself. In fact, I'm going to do the exact opposite. Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. And Cain's question, am I I my brother's keeper? Echoing down through human history, and Jesus goes to the cross and shouts out with a loud, yes, yes, you are. In a world where we step on each other to build ourselves up, God in the flesh gives up his desires in order to lift us up to himself. And so the cross fundamentally changes our way of relating to other people. <sighs> fundamentally changes our way of relating to people. Just knowing, wanting to be a less selfish person will not change you. But looking at the cross will change you. Looking at the cross will change you. Friends, listen, I would not have left heaven for any one of you. <laughs> I love you, but I would not have left heaven for you. Maybe for my kids, probably, not for the rest of you. <laughs> but Jesus left heaven to come and find you. Jesus demonstrates the love of God by giving up his glory, his comfort, his throne to come and find you. And if anyone had the right to say, as he looked forward to the cross, looked ahead to the cross, like, nah, I'm just not really feeling it today. It was Jesus, right? And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. Let me come off my throne. Let me live for you. Let me give myself for you. Let me sacrifice my desires for you. Let me sacrifice my life for you. Let me lift you up to God. Come stand on my shoulders as I lift you up. Friends, Jesus loves you. And being loved by Jesus will transform you. Being loved by Jesus will transform you from needing everybody else to lift you up into being a person who has been reconciled to God because Jesus lifts you up to God. And having experienced that, you can then go out into the world and become a person who gives your life away for the sake of others. My life, um, we live in a world that prizes individual freedom above everything else. Above everything else, we want to be free. And in order, uh, the, the result of that is this, that we now live lives with very little meaning because we live lives where we are infinitely free and yet relationally starved. Meaning equals freedom plus relationships. Freedom is a good thing. If you live in North Korea right now, you need more freedom in your life. If you live in America right now, you need a little bit less freedom in your life. To build meaningful relationships, you will have to give up some of your freedom. Not all of it, not all of it by any stretch, but some of it. You'll have to commit yourself to other people and then follow through on that commitment if you don't feel like it a little bit later. (laughs) To have meaningful relationships, you have to take yourself and your freedom off the throne. And the only way to do that is to see that the king of the universe has come off his throne for you. Once you see Jesus' love for you, it will utterly transform you. And it will utterly transform the way that you relate to other people. It's interesting. um, Do you realize that the majority of the Bible, the majority of the New Testament at least, is the Apostle Paul writing to churches to help them work this gospel reality out in the way they relate to other people. The majority of the New Testament is Paul writing to churches trying to help them and encourage them to adopt the posture of a servant. Colossians 3, uh, Paul says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I've said this before. People always talk about how CrossFit, the community at CrossFit is amazing. Uh, Nobody says that about 24-hour fitness, right? But CrossFit, it's like so great. I've been a part of like four CrossFit gyms, I think. Not recently, you can tell um, by looking. But I've never experienced anything at CrossFit that comes close to Christian community. And I realized that this is the reason. This morning I was, I was reading Colossians 3 and I realized nobody forgives each other at CrossFit. <laughs> if you're at CrossFit and somebody offends you, you either get over it or you like, find a new gym. And the tragedy of the, 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 the world we live in is that when things get difficult, we bail on each other. And friends, I want to tell you that when things get difficult, that's when it's starting to get good. Why does Paul write to the church and say, you have to forgive one another? Well, it's because you're, we're constantly offending each other. But the body is built up, the body of Christ is built up when we actually do the hard work of listening of apologizing, of forgiving. Um, Jean Vanier, Van, how do you say this? Jean Vanier he, um, was the founder of a community called L'Arche that uh, cared for people with severe disabilities. And he said this uh, in his book on community. He said, a community is only truly a, 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 a community is only truly a body when the majority of its members is making the transition from the community to, for myself to myself for the community. A community is only truly a body when the majority of its members are making the transition from the community for myself to myself for the community. Friends, I want to tell you this. Um, Resurrection OC will cross a tipping point when the majority of our people are not saying Rezo C for me, but me for Rezo C. Now, let me be clear. Does that mean that like everybody has to be invested in this to the same extent that, for example, Jason is? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is if the majority of us are trying to make a withdrawal of social capital, we will never truly be a community. And we will cross a tipping point when the majority of us cross the bridge from guest to host. From this is a church that I show up at to this is the church that I am a part of as a gift to others. Um... I'm out of time. (laughs) Let me finish with this. We are the offspring of Cain. We are people who say, um, you exist to make me feel better about myself, so I'm going to step on you in order to lift myself up. But Christians are people who are being transformed by the God who comes down from heaven who says, I'm going to give up my desires, I'm going to sacrifice myself and my life in order to lift you up to God. And having been lifted up to God by Jesus, we go out into the world as people who lift others up to God as well. The story was told, a true story of two boys playing on the banks of the Mississippi River in St. Louis. And they'd been told not to play on the banks of the river because the uh, ships would dredge the river so the barges could pass, and it created a, uh, an unstable environment where the banks would go from sand to quicksand very quickly, and they were told not to play there, but they went anyway. These two little boys. And when it grew dark and they didn't come home, their parents sent out a search party. And they went down to the river and they found one of the boys, his head sticking up out of the sand he had passed out. And they dug the sand back and they pulled him out and they revived him. And, and they said, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. 
his older brother, seeing what was happening, dives into the muck and the mire in order to lift his brother up. Friends, that is the way of Jesus. This is not the way of the world that we live in. Being a Christian doesn't mean being better than other people. (laughs) It's not even close. It's a completely different way of living. It's relating to the God of the universe who has left his heavenly throne to come and reconcile us to himself and who then sends us out into the world to be agents of reconciliation, to lift others up to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't understand why you would leave your throne for the likes of us. And we confess that we wouldn't have done the same thing. And yet we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you condescended to us. That when we were sinners, Jesus, you died for us. Would we experience again the reality and the depth of your love for us? As you lift us up to God, would you send us out into the world to be people transformed by the gospel who begin to flex the muscles of meaningful relationships? Would you build up this church? Would you help us to cross the bridge from guest to host? Help us to cross the bridge from community for me to me for community. Jesus, we live in a culture that is dying of loneliness, and we have the answer. Would you help us not to keep it to ourselves? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.